This is a podcast by The Straits Times. And now it's time for our regular sports show, Game of Two Halves, every Monday at 5.15pm, where we host the sports podcasters from The Straits Times. I'm Rachel Kelly and I have with me sports correspondent Zazali Abdulaziz and Straits Times assistant sports editor Rohit Bridgenath. Hi guys. So, sports is back. Well, mixed martial arts at least in the form of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. It held its UFC 249 event on Saturday in Florida. And Sazali, you were involved in the coverage in the lead up to the UFC 249. What was it like and how different was it in comparison to a normal UFC event? It was great. It wasn't exactly business as usual. I think in the lead up, the major difference for journalists and media was that a virtual media day was held in place of a traditional one. In a traditional media day, the, the main fighters on the main card would come to a venue, which is usually a ballroom, and be available for between you know 30 and 60 minutes for interviews. There would be you know a scrum of journalists, sometimes 10, sometimes up to 30 or even more reporters taking turns interviewing him. This time, it was basically held on WebEx, which is something like Zoom, an online conferencing platform, and we had to do a video call, uh, which is certainly not, you know, exactly one of a kind, but but it's still unique to the UFC. It was so unique that one of the fighters, Tony Ferguson, who, who headlined mm-hmm. uh, UFC 249, actually whipped out his mobile phone at the end and sent a selfie of himself with all the journalists on the screen behind him. So, yeah, I mean, other than that, the main differences, I think, were mainly for the fighters and their teams who had to undergo nasal swap testing immediately when they arrived at the host hotel in Jacksonville, Florida. They also had a non-disparagement clause in their contracts, which uh, Reportedly, didn't allow them to criticize the safety protocols the UFC right. had in place. Although UFC President Dana White brushed it aside and, and said it was just, you know, for the UFC to protect itself against untruths. Right, okay. And safety first in the current environment. And speaking of Dana White, I had a quick look at one of the interviews post-event. And he said, you know, the gate was zero, attendance was zero. And obviously mm-hmm. that's a first and a result of the current environment. But overall, do you think the event was considered a success? Yeah, I think in terms of the MMA action and the drama and the talking points, you know, within mixed martial arts, absolutely. I think, you know, we had Tony Ferguson, who is, you know, the nearly man in the same division as Khabib Nurmagomedov and Conor McGregor. You know, now he falls down the pecking order again. Sad for him. Francis Ngannou, the heavyweight fighter, enhanced his reputation. Henry Cejudo, the bantamweight champion, announced the shock retirement. So it's, it's everything you could ask for in terms of drama and action. But there is an asterisk over whether the event could be considered a success because, you know, a, a day before the fight, it was announced that middleweight fighter Jakari Souza had tested positive for the coronavirus. As I mentioned, you know, all the fighters were tested upon arrival. So he was pulled from the fight lineup and he was isolated off the hotel premises. And there was a question mark whether, you know, that there was actually a serious question mark or whether it would trigger a flood of positive tests and whether the event would take place. Thankfully, that didn't happen or at least hasn't happened. The UFC has a couple more events uh, in the coming week. And you mentioned Dana White, he seemed proud of the discovery of the positive test. You know, he said that, you know, the bottom line is that the system and the protocols work and they detected what they had to. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as well, you know, you spoke about other sporting events still being on hold. Do you think viewership was up as a result? You know, people hungry to get their sporting fix? Do you think we saw an increase in viewership of the UFC 249 as a result? 
I think, you know, being literally the, the first major sports event returning, I think, no doubt. And with the fact that there was, as you mentioned, zero attendance, it was close to fans. I'm pretty sure the pay-per-view figures will reflect this. And it's something that, I guess, was the main driver for UFC as well in deciding on, on, on weighing whether it should hold the event because it is pretty reliant on, on its TV and broadcasting deals. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see very good numbers uh, in the coming days when the UFC announces viewership figures. And obviously UFC is very different from, say, a football match. But do you think this will pave the way for other major sporting events to return? That's what Dana White believes, but I don't think you can really compare MMA to, to many other sports. Even a similar sport like boxing, I think most top boxing organizations don't have events scheduled for every two weeks as consistently as the UFC does. And they are arguably more reliant on gate receipts as well. So I don't think they will resume so soon. And, and as you mentioned, the, the differences are even greater for, for team sports and leagues. Uh, you just have to look at the English Premier League, which has been in them for over two weeks now with its project restart. And it still hasn't found a, a unified direction from all teams in the league. So Zali, do you think they're being too stubborn? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I think the stubborn is rooted in the financial stakes, which is you know much higher in the English Premier League than, say, the French uh, League One. The reports have said that an abandoned season could cost us an estimated £1.1 billion with losses most significantly from, as I mentioned, TV broadcast deals. But, you know, for me, this whole pandemic has exposed the fragility of big football's finances. You know, they make big but, but in the Premier League particularly, they also pay very inflated wages. So the clubs were forced to be a bit more prudent in managing their finances as a result of this crisis. I don't think that would be, you know, too bad a thing. So what do you think is going to happen with the EPL? The EPL are actually going to have a meeting on Monday in UK time and, and they were actually seeking clarity from you know British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's address on May 10 and they want to resume the league on June 12. But Johnson's speech did not really provide any clear answers and so the question marks remain. We also saw a recent report with three Brighton players now testing positive for coronavirus and you know the situation in Britain is still the worst in Europe so I, I, mm. I don't think there's any, any easy answer. If you ask me, I think go with a points per game system, don't relegate the teams in the bottom because that would be too harsh a punishment. You, you wouldn't be allowed. Uh, you wouldn't allow them to, to fight for their survival, but allow promotion. So end the season as it is. Have a bigger league next season, and then move on from there. Okay. Well, I'm going to call halftime. Uh, let's hope the coronavirus situation globally gets better, and we can see the return of more of our favorite sporting events. Now, if you like the Straits Times game of two halves, you can let you can listen live on Money FM 89.3 from 5:15 p.m. every Monday. Or you can subscribe to hashtag Game of Two Halves on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Back to the second half of our conversation with our Straits Times sport podcasters, Sazali and Rohit. And let's turn our attention to a sports documentary that's taken the world and Singapore by storm, The Last Dance. The miniseries centred around Michael Jordan and his last season with the Chicago Bulls in 1998 is among the top 10 most watched Netflix show in Singapore. Rohit, your Sporting Life column on Tuesday will centre around Jordan and The Last Dance. What do you think is the reason for the, inter- for the interest in the miniseries? I think I'm not too surprised, I'll say that. I was pretty lucky, actually. I'm of the age that I actually saw Jordan when I was a young man, at least on TV, not live. I wish I had seen him live. (laughs) I think the thing with truly great athletes, actually not even just great athletes, I think with extraordinary people, you know, it could be Steve Jobs, it could be Michelangelo, it could be anyone. I think, you know, there is an enduring interest in people like this, you know, that, you know, are these people geniuses? How great are they? You know, how do they get to where they've got to? I think we're always 
intrigued by that. And I'll give you a really good example because in 2017, there was a new book written on Muhammad Ali by a guy called Jonathan Eag, you know, and it's called Ali Alive. And this book was written in 2017 and Ali fought in the 60s and the 70s. You know, so almost 50 years later, this book, it sold really well and it was a brilliant book. And 50 years later, people are still interested in Ali. And I think it's the same with Jordan. I think you you want to know once time passes, what made him? I mean, he was an astonishing player and he had an astonishing drive and he was very single-minded. He was a little bit selfish, but very selfish, some people will say. But whatever it was, I think people are intrigued to know what made him what he was. And I think this was an inside look. And I think the most important thing is, of course, that Jordan himself is there speaking about it. Zali, what are your thoughts? Have you watched the series? Yeah, I'm knee-deep in it and, and I love it. You know, for me, it's the unparalleled access. I enjoy, in fact, reading an ESPN article by Ramona Shelburne about how the 500-foot hours of footage even came to be in the first place, you know, which required clearance from the Chicago Bulls management, Phil Jackson and, and Michael Jordan getting control over its release. And even then, it took almost 20 years for, for the documentary to get off the ground. So I'm enjoying it, you know, thoroughly. 500 hours of footage, that's phenomenal. Yeah, 20 years later. And, you know, it has been 20 years since Jordan last played for the Bulls. And I know that, Rohit, you briefly mentioned this, but what else is it about him that's so compelling? What really comes to light in the documentary? Documentary. I think one of the most important things about the documentary, especially people who watch sport today, I think, you know, when we watch sport today, unfortunately, you know, is that there's very limited access. You know, I think you get a very sanitized view of athletes nowadays, you know, because you, you maybe there's a press conference, you know, or there's some sponsor gathering, or you just watch the athlete play. But I think the great thing about this series is it goes to places that we usually don't go to. You know, so this cameraman, he's there on the bus, he's there on the plane, he's there in the dressing room, he's there in practice sessions, he's in uh, Jordan's hotel room. So I think it's a kind of access that we don't get to athletes, which is really, really important because it tells you what they're like in these different places. I mean, for example, Jordan was incredibly hard on his teammates, you know, because he was demanding a standard from them, right, which, you know, which meant they had to keep raising themselves all the time and he's really hard on them. That's something people won't see until you get access to footage of practice. There are some critics who say that, you know, this documentary is almost like a like a hagiography of, of Jordan uh, and it might be so, you know, but, but honestly, who cares? We've hardly ever had such an in-depth study of one of the greatest sports persons of all time. Michael Jordan built his entire persona by outworking and outwilling people, you know, and it's not just through natural talent or, or sheer luck. Like Rohit said, you know, for him to still be around, you know, reflecting on his career and, and understanding his thought process, you know, it's, it's really a wonderful thing. You know, they, they do talk about his gambling and whatnot, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, for example, the Ali book is much more... Is much harder on Ali than maybe this series is on Jordan. And I think it probably took 20 years for Jordan to be comfortable with the idea of discussing a lot of the issues, like his gambling. Or, you know, the fact that, you know, there was a very famous incident where he refused to back a Democrat candidate in a Senate race by saying that, you know, Republicans also buy sneakers. And it was a very famous, you know, anecdote thrown around for many years. And it, finally, in this series, he discusses it. So that's interesting. He gets, you get to see certain parts of him which perhaps you had not seen before. So do you think this goes beyond the Jordan brand name and, this, and, and the viewership is simply so high because people are inspired and they want to learn from the lessons that are told and the stories that are told through this miniseries? I think people just, I, I don't know whether how many lessons people are going to learn because I think that he operates on a level which I think most normal people are never going to get to. But yes, I mean, of course, I mean, the most basic lessons are there on, you know, how hard he works and how driven he is. 
But I think it's just entertaining because I think one thing about Jordan is he's very beautiful. I mean, in the sense the way he plays, it's like he's like an art form. I mean, it's, it's incredible the things that he does. And I think the second thing is that probably, I mean, you you could argue about this, you know, for ten hours or something. He could be among probably the top two competitive athletes I've ever seen in my life. I, I mean, his his competitiveness is almost ridiculous. And when yeah. you say he's very beautiful, do you think that's is that the reason behind the name of the series, The Last Dance, because he's literally dancing and gliding on the court? That could very well be. I mean, he is, there, is, there is something about him. I mean, doing the stuff that he does in midair. And he's so... He's always inventive. I think the thing with Jordan is that he's constantly inventive. And that's what makes him fun to watch because you never... I mean, there's this great move that he has in the series where, you know, he starts moving towards the basket. I mean, he's in midair and he's got the ball in his right hand and then somebody comes to block him and then he shifts the ball to his left hand in midair and baskets. I mean, that is it's almost unreasonable to have that level of skill. Now, for both of you, no spoilers, but I want to know, what's your favorite moment in the series so far? Sazali, perhaps you'd like to go first. Yeah, for me, it's something that Rohit mentioned uh, earlier, which is, you know, Michael Jordan being hard on his teammates. You know, he was in in, uh, one of the earlier episodes, that's all I'll say. Uh, Michael Jordan, you know, lost his school in training with teammate Ron Harper and Tony Kukoc when, you know, his his sort of right-hand man, Scotty Pippen, was out injured and he felt the team were not pulling their weight enough. You know, that would be something like seeing... you know, Cristiano Ronaldo berate his Real Madrid teammates, you know, that, that would be something completely, un, you know, uh, comprehensible. And the thing is, you know, he isn't doing it to be mean. You, you can totally see that, you know, Jordan just wants to win. And Rohit, quickly before we have to wrap up. Yeah, the series is not ended, so I don't know. But I, I would say for me, it's, it's competitiveness. I find it when somebody says something about him and he feels slighted, that he feels he needs to prove himself. So that he has an enormous reservoir of pride. He always wants to people wrong, and he will go out and he will do it. And that's a very difficult thing to do. We all want to prove people wrong, but to actually go out and score 50, 60 points on a night is a very difficult thing to do when people are trying to block you. Well, there goes the final whistle on our sports discussion of the week. We hope you enjoyed listening to us. Always great to have you with us. Thank you, Rohit and Sazali. Yeah, thank Thank you very much. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.